welcome back to Waste of Breath Radio. I'm your host, Troy Miller. There's no need to fear just because I'm I'm not producing one every day doesn't mean I'm not, you know, still thinking about things to rant with you about. And so it's been a really busy last couple of days. Um, so considering that I've been I take I took the last few days off. I'm just going to kind of fly through some headlines here, a few few summary descriptions of the articles and when I'm done I aim to explain what I'm coming to call soil economics. And it's the opposite of trickle down economics basically. And it's ecologically much more sound and economically much more sound. Yeah, this is the there's there's a real problem when we're using analogies that don't work in nature. We can uh, we can try to exempt ourselves from nature as much as possible, but in the end, it's it's a, it's a, it's a futile futile effort. So, first headline: How privatizing water systems costs taxpayers and endangers them. This is over at heavy.com. It was published on February seventh and updated on February 9th, two thousand eighteen. I'm just going to read you the summary here because it's a really long article. A year-long investigation by Heavy found that privatized water management has been a disaster for American towns, with residents paying 59% higher fees for water on average, suffering high-profile health problems, and bracing for an infrastructure time bomb. Residents of contracted towns from Indiana to Florida are commonly paying almost $200 more each year, while some eastern cities have found life-threatening lead in tap water as part of the wreckage left from their contracts. And it's set to get worse with both the Trump administration and numerous local authorities pushing to privatize despite the devastating number of failures. And that's it, because it's not, they aren't trying to create a successful water system. They're trying to extract wealth from the commons. What's a good way to do that? Take anything that's public, roads, all of our infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, sewers, water management, electric lines, Electric lines are frequently not owned by the public, but they are a commons. They are part of the commons. They're a common utility. And they're something that we accepted back in the 30s was something that is necessary to participate in the economy. What we need, the same recognition we need to have with broadband now. Speaking of broadband, I'm going to kind of skip around. I had one, I had one way I was going to rant through all these articles, but, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of improvisation that, 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 should be iconic of this program. Speaking of broadband, this is over at themaven.net. Verizon will packet tax savings, not create better network or jobs. Not only that, not only are they doing this in the face of the tax savings, but they're doing this after Ajit Pai had argued, I guess successfully to the FCC uh, uh, board there. And we'll, this, is, this is all still, Congress is pushing back on this, good on the Democrats in Congress who are. But after Ajit Pai spent months telling um, everyone that, oh yeah, Verizon's infrastructure, they would invest more if we just get rid of net neutrality. It's all these burdensome regulations that are why they are sitting on their thumbs and not doing anything, right? They don't, they, they, they're overburdened with regulations and they're not making enough money. Okay, so we, we repeal net neutrality and we give them massive tax breaks and what happens? No extra Verizon investments. So, reading from this article, Verizon announced on January 23rd that they will spend the same amount of money on infrastructure in 2018 as they always do. 
it'll be between 17 and 17.8 billion dollars same figures as 2015 and 2016 when the net neutrality rules were fully in place so we'll deregulate and give you some tax cuts and you'll do the exact same thing as always wonder where the extra money is going right you know it's just one of these things where you go Okay, so how many times do we have to get lied to before we realize that it's not a, the, 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 the companies don't care about the workers? The companies literally see the workers as liabilities on their, on their books. That's it. It's really just like Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, right? And they're incentivized to do that by our perverse tax plans, tax scams, tax codes. Somehow pensions, though, became assets when you're going bankrupt, but liabilities every other time. Speaking of pensions, L.L. Bean, good American company, has been for a long time. Um, my understanding from a little bit of research I did last week was that they started outsourcing some of their goods um, back in about 2011, maybe even before that. But certainly by 2012, 2013, my understanding is that they're classic, you know, um, monogrammed, backpacks were being made in Vietnam. So what happens when you start outsourcing goods? Well, you can't guarantee them anymore. So LL Bean has announced that they're changing their lifetime warranty for all their products to a one-year warranty with receipt. Um, on top of that, this is from February 5th, Lori Valigra over at the Bangor Daily News, being uh, uh, a big main newspaper. L.L. Bean starts employee buyouts, ends pension plan. The measures were announced last February, and they started on January 1st with the aim of reducing workforce by 500 full-time people, or 10% of its 5,000 employees. So the tax cuts really didn't do that much for these workers in Maine. Uh, I think everyone has seen now that the carrier workers who lost their jobs are very upset with Mike Pence and Donald Trump, and they feel like political pawns because that's how they were used. And it's not right. People's livelihoods should not be, you know, pawns in a political chess game. The most disposable thing that you throw out there. It's, it's, it's wrong. So L.L. Bean starts outsourcing their goods and eventually, um, you know, and that was during the, the Barack Obama administration. Yeah, no two ways around this. And um, One of the things that liberals, neoliberals traditionally miss is that globalization, oh, when, it's un, when it's not well-regulated, the internationalization of everything from financials to actual goods, um, it inevitably will hurt workers in the environment because that's where the companies are going to get most of their margin of returns. As I said in an earlier podcast, you know, it would be a really good way to disincentivize this type of thing. Put a tax on uh, carbon so that shipping is not so cheap. You know, it has to be a, a, a difference high enough that it makes up for all the costs that they'll save on slave labor and poisoning the environment over there without regulations or the potential of lawsuits, which are frequently, I would argue, the more expensive part of regulations. It's lawsuits that don't even necessarily win anything that the companies have to, you know, spend huge amounts of money on their lawyers on retainer um, to just make sure that things don't ever get to court. 
because companies are less worried about paying fines or paying lawyers to keep things out of the public eye than they are about bad publicity. Look at Papa John's and the neo-Nazis, right? Something When L.L. Bean started doing this, or when I learned that L.L. Bean started doing this, I had a flashback to my one of my business classes I took in the course of my German studies where Steiff Bears went, went through, or went, went uh, through a similar sort of awakening, let's call it. Where Steiff Bears, for those of you who are, don't know, you can buy antique Steiff Bears for tens of thousands of dollars on the internet. The original teddy bear that was given to Teddy Roosevelt and became iconic for, as a kid's toy was a Steiff teddy bear. It was a Steiff bear. Little stuffed animals. Very well regarded for their quality. So... I want to say in the 90s and early 2000s, they, when as, as globalization really opened up, they started outsourcing a lot of that um, manufacturing to South America and other places where it was much cheaper. And what they realized was that the quality they lost and the sales they were losing and the inability to stand by their product was actually costing them more than bringing the the work back home and I believe they automated a, a number of the jobs that had been done by hand before but they're still hiring more German workers now than they were when they were shipping all that stuff over to South America to be finally assembled back in Germany and I'm, I, I'm you know I'm recounting that story off the top of my head so I may have some details wrong I want to say in the mid 2000s they started bringing all that manufacturing back home for teddy bears right Elon Musk uh Growing empires fueled by $4.9 billion in government subsidies. That's from May 30th, 2015, but it's uh, important to remember in, in, in uh, context of that big battery that is built for Australia, in context of what they're doing in Puerto Rico, and in context of what we're, you know, that space rocket launch. Even if it's in private hands, we are doing so much to support private industry. Gover government can absolutely not be demonized the way that the conservatives and libertarians and tech libertarians want to and the Silicon Valley libertarian types want to because very simply, they would be nowhere without the government, without the government providing basic protection, providing roads, providing uh, uh, all of the subsidies. ExxonMobil's uh, profits since the tax break went up quintu nearly quintupled after the Trump tax cut, they reported a quarterly profit of $8.38 billion, up from $1.68 billion a year earlier. Talk about government subsidies. How is that possible? How does that happen? Where is that money? <laughs> Wait, what? So we are we are they telling me that we are losing seven billion dollars in tax revenue? I don't think so. I think a lot of that is again in in terms of uh uh I think a lot of that is probably in terms of regulations that they don't have to worry about as nearly as much. They plan to invest fifty billion dollars over the next five years into U.S., uh, including new operations to extract more energy from the surging Permian Basin in West Texas. Um. There's something, there's some sick irony about the Permian Basin and the extinction event that we're heading towards. Um, 
you look up the PETM, well, it's the Paleocene, Eocene, Thermal Maximum. Now, if you look up the Permian Mass Extinction, you'll see what, uh, sure, there's a whole lot of energy there. A lot of things went extinct. Give it a hundred, give it a couple hundred million more years and, uh, who knows, someone will be harvesting the the Anthropocene Basin. Unlike, you know, USA Today, bless their hearts, uh, Unlike many major U.S. employers, I, I call BS on that. I don't think it was many, unless, uh, unless you consider more than three many. Um, Exxon did not announce wage increases, wage increases or worker bonuses pegged to the corporate tax cut from 35% to 21%. The boost from tax reform came largely due to a reevaluation of deferred income taxes. It's one of those amazing things that People like you and I, well, it's really not, unless you, unless you incorporate deferred income isn't, isn't going to be much. Biggest gains in union membership in 2017 were for young workers under the age of 35. And I would argue that the good reason for this is because the jig is up with our generations. The jig is up, you know. This is this gener. These are generations who, you know, everyone said in the '90s that, oh, look at the grunge generation, and they're really they're you know, they're turning away from all this, and they realize they have the NME because they realize that there's nothing to it all, you know. So they're rebelling and all this, and I think you'd say a similar sort of thing about the punks in the '80s. I'm really I'm not a I'm not a punk historian, and I'm not a, a grunge historian either. But then there was this illusion in the 90s that the economy was actually doing well. And it was an illusion. You know, the stock market blew up because of the internet, the dot-com bubble. We were, the house of cards came a little bit tumbling down in, what, 2003? 2002? Then it crumbled a little bit more in 2007. They put some, you know, someone sticking a finger in the hole of the boat that's sinking down, which is basically what the what we did with Dodd Frank after um, the global crisis in 2007, 2008, and we're set. We're still we're on we're on track for it, right? So that's now pretty much. We're closing in on 30 years of failed economic policies. If you include all of Reagan, which we should, and probably also Carter, who first pushed austerity, or didn't first push austerity, but was a Democrat who was promoting austerity as as some way to fix our economy. What we know now is 40, 50 years of austerity economics across the world. Nothing happens except for corporations make more profits. And I want to make clear that profits aren't wealth. 30 years of this, I would argue, is a lot of the reason. And, you know, students taking out massive amounts of debt that will be on, never be able to repay. You know, yeah. They're joining a union to get their back so they can get the wages. So they aren't buried in medical debt. So that maybe those pensions that L.L. Bean is cutting and buying out employees on, at least there'll be something there. It won't be a 401k that, you know, how much value was lost in people's 401ks last week? And then regain some of it, I understand, in the week before that, too. 
you know, volatility is, 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 is a real thing in the economy. And finally, I would argue the economy is actually starting to reflect the realities of it. And the realities of it, no one understands what the hell is going on. But everyone has been... I mean, people are able to tout trickle-down economics, right? One more. This is a kind of a random aside. Well, not really. You know, let's talk about the insurance companies. California launched an investigation following this admission by an Aetna um, medical doctor that he never once looked at a patient's medical records when deciding whether to uh, 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 permit them or deny them coverage, deny their claims. He never looked at the patient's medical history. So it's a doctor making banking decisions based on whatever the nurse is recommended. This is why it makes you wonder how much the guy is getting paid for one, because he was probably getting paid more to deny people's claims without using any medical um, input than he was working as a doctor, because he's basically a banker. He's a money changer at that point. Or he's part of the cog of money changers and he's not using any any of his medical experience to actually make the money changers do anything resembling what they claim to do. I.e. deal in the business of risk regarding health. And another one, this is from the New York Magazine. There's also been picking up traction on a number of other sources I've seen. Uh, we must cancel everyone's student debt for the economy's sake. Yes. Yes. That's it, right? And that brings me finally 20 minutes into this rant to soil economics. And I might be able to keep this pretty short. I argued in a podcast two or so weeks ago that if we want to stimulate the economy, we need to cancel everyone's debt. We need to bring back the debt jubilee. Which I said incorrectly there was every seventh year. I believe it's actually every 50 year, every 49 years, seven times seven years. And why would this work? And why doesn't trickle down economics work? Anyone who's studied any sort of agriculture, gardening, farming knows that rain actually is, can be very detrimental to soils. It, uh, it causes erosion, runoff. It, the impact of rain on soil disrupts the microorganisms down there. Now, it's not that you need rain to grow plants and all this, but it's not. Trickle down is actually without checks and things, without. Trickle down on a flat terrace is a flood. We saw this in Houston. And it washes everything away and it leaves barren land. Soil economics, I would argue, and I, I think I'm coining this term, but I'm not sure. I haven't thought of a cute acronym for soil, S-O-I-L, though, so I haven't gotten that far along on this. Soil economics or grassroots economics, I would posit, argues that the nutrients that grow all life on Earth are at the bottom. The tallest trees grow out of the earth and they provide ecological benefit for the trees around it that have grown afterwards. But the tree didn't grow from the rain. Similarly, forgiving everyone's debt in the economy would be 
to ensure a nutrient-rich lower middle working class of America. The nutrients that sustain life come from the soil. And similarly, the money that drives and grows an economy has to come from the, the, the bottom. And we, we talk about the bottom as though it's, it's not the majority of what's going on, the majority of the life and the majority of, of the economy. You know, the tree is the most obvious thing in the forest, but there is much more life all around and underneath that tree that is sustaining that tree. Similarly, while the rich in the economy are the most obvious, it's, it's far less important that the tree have more energy, that the rich get more money. On the one hand, while that tree is alive, it's preventing a lot of runoff in, uh, that, the, from the rain. On the other hand, when that tree dies and drops its leaves, the soil will get much, much richer. Rather than having all the nutrients taken up by one big tree, let's say. And this is an imperfect analogy, so bear with me. You have those nutrients spread around that you can have rich underbrush or rich growth at the bottom. That rich growth at the bottom then feeds all of the growth. It is critical that we ensure that working Americans are able to get out of debt. Soils that are in nutrient debt are simply dead. They can't support anything. Once the last nutrients have been taken out of the soil, that's it. Until something comes along and dies to restore some nutrients into it. Because as I've said before, there is this myth, and a friend of mine who listens to this podcast, he'll go unnamed unless he wants to be and comment on the on this and say, hey, that's me. But he said, yeah, as a person with, a, with an embarrassing amount of student debt, which he says that the economy is based on these loans. And I argue that is the major myth. In economics, as I've explained before, wealth is created when labor is applied to something and you get something else. The traditional example from Adam Smith is you cut down a tree, create an axe handle, and you go get find someone who creates an axe blade for you, you exchange goods, and then you go down and you create more axes using the axe handle you created. You've added to the wealth of the nation. Now you can be more productive. You've increased productivity. What is happening with student debt and medical debt is that Basically, you're paying for services already rendered. There's nothing being added to the economy. You are paying interest down on something you have already gotten. And you can't declare bankruptcy out of it. They'll come for your family's goods. It's a racket. And it's not good for the economy. So all of that money that you're spending on interest on a service that you've already rendered is now money that can't be spent on actual goods, new goods and services of the economy that would actually create an economy. You get that multiplier effect as you're able to pay for a service, then that person is able to pay for a good or service, and it goes around and around and around. Um, another aspect of soil economics, I would argue, is 
things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was very violently done. I mean, the displacement of people is, is not to be forgotten in all of this. But we need a similar program with broadband around the country because we need to ensure that the lowliest of the low in this country have access to the basic necessities of participating in our modern society and our modern economy. Roads that are decent, that aren't being, you know, Oh, I love the, the, the pitch by the natural gas companies that they always do in local uh, counties back home in Wheeling or back home in West Virginia is they say, you know, we'll, uh, we'll fix up your roads and everything. And everyone goes, yeah, great. You'll fix up our roads. We'll sell you our thing. We'll have a nice stream of income coming in on this land that was fallow basically for the last 20 some years since Pop-Pop died. Great. We'll, we'll, you know, and what in fact happens is they, they pave the roads for their trucks. Then they ruin their, the roads with their trucks that are, uh, way too heavy for the for whatever uh, for what the grade of the road that they're dealing with, and they also you know they'll roll the trucks over because a lot of the drivers are from Oklahoma and they don't know how to drive around hills, mountains, depending upon where you're from, and they end up costing the economy a lot more than they gain. They 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 internalize all those profits. They steal that water. They despoil the land. And when the gas stops being productive, you'll still be stuck with the blight of the, you know, basically the derrick, the, the, the drilling pad on your property. But your royalty checks will drop down to maybe five cents, 10 cents, 20 cents, a buck 20. You want a dollar and 20 a month? Great. Wait for five years after that natural gas lease goes into effect. That's not even enough to cover someone's medical debt. Someone's student debt. So that buck 20 now goes right back to paying off interest on a service rendered if we're dealing with college education, college educated people, which we're not always. And that's, you know, nothing to say about people who don't go to college. I think it's a myth that everyone should have to go to college to be able to get a good job. And I don't think it's, tr- I think it's a myth currently. And I think we should ensure that it's a myth going forward. So I've covered a lot of topics. It's about 30 minutes of uh, waste of breath. But I want to know what you think about the idea of soil economics as a contrast, the opposite of trickle-down economics. And something that has an analogy in nature that actually works. As opposed to some mythical, you know, trickle-down economics it's bait yeah the the idea that rich people spend more when you give them more money because they weren't uh, the the idea that their money is all tied up somewhere and if they just had a little bit more spending money they'd invest well it's clearly a lie look at what verizon's doing and ll bean ll bean has its own unique set of circumstances they announced that plan last year but even so what, they aren't going to get benefit massive from the tax base? This is Paul LePage's state, that guy. Anyway, anyway, before I get off all on to restating a lot of what I've already said, thanks for listening. Like, comment, share, you know. Um, let me know what you think about soil economics. Let me know how you think, what I think I'm missing, what we could add. And let's create, let's let's come up together with a model of economics that isn't f- bad. This has been Waste of Breath Radio with your host, Troy Miller.
Tune in next time, and thanks for listening.